This Scientific American podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, your source for audiobooks and more. Audible.com features more than 100,000 titles, including science books you've been meaning to check out, like Dan Ariely's The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves, and Richard Panic's The 4% Universe, Dark Matter, Dark Energy, and The Race to Discover the Rest of Reality. Right now, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook and a one-month trial membership to the Scientific American audience. For details, go to audible.com slash Siam. Steve Mursky here. Welcome back for part two of my conversation with Kevin Dutton, author of The Wisdom of Psychopaths, What Saints, Spies, and Serial Killers Can Teach Us About Success. I want to talk about um, this fascinating ability uh, that you discuss in the book of people who score very high on the psychopath tests to determine just by looking at other people who is a good person to victimize? Yeah, well, this all stemmed uh, from a throwaway line by uh, by Ted Bundy. Uh, now, uh, Ted Bundy, who we, we're all very familiar with, uh, staved in the skulls of 35 women over a four-year period during the mid-1970s uh, in, in the U.S. Um, he, uh, during interview, confided to police uh, that he could tell a good victim simply from the way she walked. Um, now, a team of Canadian researchers decided to take him at his word. Okay, and this was 20 years after he'd been executed. I think it was in 2009 they conducted this study. Uh, Buddy had, Bundy had once articulated that he was the, the coldest son of a bitch you'll ever meet, and no one could, could fault him there. But, but was he, this team of researchers wondered, also one of the shrewdest? So to find out, they set up an ingenious experiment. First, they recruited 12 women, six of whom had suffered a previous traumatic attack and six of whom hadn't. Secondly, they videotaped these women walking along a corridor. Thirdly, they then presented these 12 videotaped segments uh, to a bunch of students on the one hand and a bunch of psychopaths housed within the confines of a supermax prison on the other hand and asked them quite simply uh, to figure out who was who, which of the 12 women had been attacked and which hadn't. Now, the rationale was simple. If Bundy's assertion held water and he really had been able to sniff out weakness from the way his victims walked, then the psychopath should be better at decoding vulnerability than the students. That, it turned out, was surprising, was precisely uh, what the study uncovered. Now, here's the deal. Studies like this, findings like these, uh, are actually no flash in the pan. In fact, this, that study I've just told you is one of like, a growing number of studies that, in recent years, have actually started to to uh, to show the psychopath up in a in a more in a new, more complex light, a light completely different from the you know the lurid headline, the the lurid um, uh, uh, shadows cast by by newspaper headlines and Hollywood scriptwriters. A kind of an adaptive light now. Uh, in the same year that that experiment was published, I actually decided to perform my own take on it, okay? So if, um, as those researchers had found, uh, psychopaths were better or are better at zoning in on vulnerability, then there has to be applications. There has to be ways in which, uh, rather than being a drain on society, uh, it actually confers some benefit. So enlightenment dawned when I was meeting a friend at the airport. Now we all get a little bit paranoid going through customs, right? But uh, you know, even when we're even when we're perfectly innocent. But imagine how it would feel 
if we did have something to hide. So 30 undergraduate students took part in the experiment. Uh, half of them scored high in psychopathic characteristics as measured by a, a standardized psychometric test measuring psychopathic characteristics and half of them scored low. Okay. There were also five associates or helpers and these were my evil co-conspirators in the plot. Now the student's job was easy. They had to sit in a classroom and observe the associates' movements as they entered through one door and exited through another and they traversed en route a small elevated stage. But that wasn't all. There was also a little catch. They also had to note who was guilty, which of the five associates was concealing a scarlet handkerchief. Now, to raise the stakes and give them something to go on, the associate in question was handed £100. If the jury decided that they were the guilty party, if when the votes were counted uh, they came out on top, then they had to give that £100 back. But if they got away with it, if uh, the finger of suspicion fell more heavily on one of the others, then they would, in contrast, stand to be rewarded. They'd get to keep the £100. Now, as you can imagine, the nerves were jangling when the associates made their entrance. But the question was, which of the students would make the better customs officials? Would the psychopath's predatory instincts prove reliable or would their nose for vulnerability let them down? Well, the results were extraordinary. Over 70% of the students scoring high in psychopathic characteristics correctly identified the handkerchief smuggling associate compared to just around 30% of the low scorers. So the bottom line, folks, is, you know, zeroing in on weakness might well be part of the serial killer's toolkit, but it might also come in handy at the airport. We might need uh, to think about uh, having customs officials who are a little bit high on that psychopathic spectrum than they might otherwise uh, might otherwise be. What are they picking up on? We don't know. I don't know. I did ask people what they were looking at. Uh, we don't actually know really what they're picking up on. Um, it's like they are. I mean, psychopaths are predators. They are social predators. So it's likely that they're picking up on subtle aspects of body language. Um, I'm intending to run a study now where uh, we look at eye tracking movements and we actually track uh, through through uh, specialized equipment where precisely where people are looking. So that's a follow up study, which I'm going to conduct sometime next year. But at the moment, um, we don't really know. We don't really know. But they're definitely picking up on something. And they themselves might not know consciously what they're looking at. They just have a feeling based on some input of the data that number three is the one with the handkerchief. That's exactly right. And I mean, I did ask. I said, why? Why? What What are you actually looking at? And they didn't know. And it's like any expert. If you ask an expert in anything, precisely like an expert chess grandmaster or an expert golfer, you know, precisely how are you, you know, what, 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 what kinds of strategy are you using? Um, often experts just can't put it into words. It's kind of an intuitive thing. Uh, but the only way we can do that, like, like you rightly said, they don't know themselves. But, but one way of looking at it is to use eye tracking equipment uh, and to see precisely what they're looking at when, when they're presented with these images and these, these moving figures. You talk in the book about one of the reasons you're so interested in this subject is your own father, you realized, was a psychopath, as was a very close friend of yours when you were a boy. 
That's right. Well, I mean, it, 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 it's crazy to, to, to look back on it and say that, you know, my own father was a, a nailed down psychopath. Uh, but he was, there's absolutely no question. I mean, he wasn't, um, he wasn't violent. He was a market trader. He worked in uh, selling all sorts of things, uh, not, not in the stock market. Uh, thank God. Uh, but, uh, he worked Those in were the real psychopaths. <laughs> that's right. Not, but he worked in a London street market where he was selling all kinds of, uh, of goods. And, um, he was, um, as I say, he wasn't violent, but he was very charming. Uh, he was, he was certainly ruthless. He was fearless. He was a brilliant salesperson. I mean, this guy really, I mean, he really could sell anything to anybody. Um, and some of the stunts he used to get up to were, were incredible. I'll give you an example. Uh, I mean, I remember one time when I must have been about nine or 10. We were, uh, we were having dinner in an Indian restaurant in London. And, uh, at the end of the dinner, as he was paying the bill, my, my dad suddenly tinkled a spoon against a glass um, and stood up and started to make an impromptu speech. The whole restaurant went quiet. And he said, I'd just like to thank everyone for coming. Uh, I know that some of you can come from just around the corner, and I know that some of you have come from a little bit further afield, but you're all equally welcome. Oh, and um, there's a, a little drinks reception across the road in the King's Arms pubs, uh, King's Arms pub, um, and um, you, uh, you're, you're, you're most welcome. It would be great to see you over there. And with that, he started to clap. As indeed did the entire restaurant. So we've now got an entire restaurant of strangers who've never seen each other before, who've never seen us before, all applauding wildly because they, of course, didn't want to be seen as the gate crashers uh, to the party. So I always remember we're going out. Uh, out the door and I remember saying to my dad you know I'm only about nine or ten I was saying dad you know we, we're not really going to the pub are we and he said no of course we're not son he says but that lot are and my mate Malcolm has just taken over as landlord he'll make a few quid tonight uh, and that was it we just disappeared now if you th- imagine the kind of the balls that you need to get up and do something like that I could pay you a thousand bucks and you wouldn't get up and do that but this was something which he would just do without turning a hair the man was utterly shameless utterly fearless and your friend, your uh, your little friend on on New Year's Eve. Oh, that's right, my my friend on New Year's Eve. I've been uh, I've been uh, friends with this guy ever since high school. He ended up uh, getting uh, ever since junior school. In fact, uh, he ended up getting a job with the British Secret Service, and uh, he was one of the most persuasive guys that, that I ever met. And he was just a natural born persuader. He was a natural manipulator. And um, when I was uh, one one year, he uh, he stayed over at um, at uh, at my house uh, for for New Year's Eve. And uh, it got to about 10 o'clock or so. And my, my mum said, you know, it's time to go to bed. And, uh, you know, we, we, we didn't want to go to bed. And I put up a bit of a fight, you know, and came up with all kinds of excuses why we should stay up. You know, like New Year comes round only once a year, uh, which is a pretty original kind of argument. Uh, didn't work. Uh, and anyway, just as we thought the game was up, my, my friend, couldn't have been more than eight or nine, suddenly turned around and said, well, Mrs. Dutton, uh, you don't want us running around at the crack of dawn while you're lying in bed with a headache, do you? Uh, instantly. Um, you know, that was it. It worked. He, he, he had a, a, even at that young age, he had an innate sense of playing on other people's self-interest rather than his own. Exactly the same kinds of talent that top politicians, uh, use. And, um, I think we were the last in bed that night, actually. I think we turned the lights off, in fact. In the book, you say you stayed up till three in the morning. Yeah, it would have been something like that. Yeah, it would have been, uh, yeah, yeah, very late. One last thing. Why is this predominantly something we see in men rather than women? Mm. There's a, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, we don't really know, but we can speculate. 
Um, one of the reasons might be that uh, there are different parental socialization processes when you bring up boys and girls. Boys uh, tend to be brought up uh, the, the kind of aggression stereotype. Aggression is, is, is more tolerated in boys than it is in girls. And as I say, socialization, parental uh, uh, practices might bring that out, might nurture that more in boys uh, than in girls. Also, They're also taught to tamp down their emotional states. Exactly right. Well, also girls tend to develop... Uh, socio-emotional and linguistic skills at an earlier stage than boys. This is quite a well-known finding, which might give them a better kind of behavior inhibition strategy earlier on. So that's the developmental theory behind it. There's also a neurological theory why uh, psychopathy might be more uh, prevalent in the male community than the female community. Um, when uh, females, when uh, women are presented with negative aversive stimuli, uh, they tend to show behavioral withdrawal, um, uh, uh, things like uh, uh, characteristics such as anxiety, whereas where males are confronted with negative aversive stimuli, they tend to show be, uh, evidence of behavioral activation, angry, uh, anger and, 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 uh, and aggression. So there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a, a dichotomy there between males and females. Uh, there might also be a sociological reason. There might also, um, be, um, uh, a, a reticence, uh, for women, for females to report, uh, accurately on questionnaires, antisocial, uh, feelings, antisocial tendencies. And there might be a bias in clinicians to interpret, interpret female behavior as antisocial rather than, say, histrionic. So, um, it's more likely than not a confluence of all three. It's more likely than not a confluence of the sociological, the developmental, and the hardwired neuropsychological. Uh, um, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's probably a, a, a combination of all three. But the, the, the statistics have, are definitely, uh, definitely stand up. I mean, roughly about uh, one, uh, one to, yeah, one to two percent of men um, are psychopathic. Uh, probably about, um, half to three quarters of a percent of the female population. And you undoubtedly have taken the various tests for a psychopathy. And how do you score? I'm, um, I, I have some of the dials turn up pretty high. I'm pretty fearless. Not, not much scares me. I'm pretty physically fearless, pretty socially fearless. Uh, I don't really get anxious that much. Um, I'm pretty mentally tough. Uh, I'm very focused. Um, what lets me down is the conscience. Um, I, um, I, I, things play on my conscience. Um, and I think that's where I, I, uh, I thank my mother for that, actually. I think if, uh, you know, if it was, uh, if I just had my dad's genes, uh, I might not be sitting here, uh, right now, but it's, uh, it's lucky genes aren't everything, of course. But, um, but, uh, yeah, I've got some of those dials turned up high, but I, I'm, I'm kind of let down, uh, by my conscience a little bit. Well, as you and I are sitting here in a small room together, I'm glad that your conscience is keeping you from killing me. <laughs> well, I wouldn't kill, I won't kill until after the interview comes out. And uh, that's my self-interest. But, uh, you know, if, it, if you don't do a good job, you better watch your back, mate. Kevin Dutton's book is called The Wisdom of Psychopaths, What Saints, Spies, and Serial Killers Can Teach Us About Success. You can get it as your free audio book by taking advantage of the offer at www.audible.com slash Siam. In the next episode, coming up soon, Dutton talks to Dexter after Michael C. Hall. In the meantime, get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can find Citizen Science, which describes big research efforts 
that need the eyes, ears, and computers of interested people like you. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 